I am afraid every single time I do something worth doing. And if I'm not afraid, then I know I'm just doing my job, not the work. The work is dancing with the thing that makes you afraid. You are listening to Louder Than Words, the podcast inspiring creatives of all types by giving you a glimpse into the lives and creative process of the most remarkable people you know. I'm John Benini, and I'm your host. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Louder Than Words, where we're providing a glimpse into the lives of some innovative entrepreneurs, writers, designers, and creators in order to give us that little bit of inspiration to sort of see our ideas through. My name is John Benini. I'm a conversion copywriter. You can visit me on my website. I post about creating copy that drives action from all sorts of things like headlines and button text and emails and all those, all those really fun things. So please come and find me. I'm at johnbenini.co and on Twitter at benini 84 uh, today we're joined by Seth Godin, a man who really doesn't need an introduction. And most times when people say that, they still give an introduction. I'm literally not going to give him an introduction because if you're listening to this podcast, you know who Seth Godin is. So I don't need to sit here and, and patronize you by telling him who he is. So let's not waste time on that. Seth, it's a pleasure having you on Louder Than Words today. How's everything going? Well, given that Chris and Scott and Bernadette and so many of my heroes, Al, have been here, I don't know why I waited so long. I apologize, but it's, it's a pleasure to be on the show with you. Great, great. And, and today's a big day, too. You announced your candidacy for presidency. So uh, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, obviously. But can you, can you talk about that post for a second? Because I saw that in my inbox this morning, and I was like, this is, this is really clever. I got to tell you, I didn't expect so many really nice notes. I guess one of the best things you can do is announce you're going to run for president and then not do it. <laughs> because none of the critics want to hear from you at that point, but all your fans say, go, go, do it. So I get where that ego thing comes from. It was thrilling. You know, my point was, uh, if you talk to politicians, and sometimes I do, they have made several fundamental errors, and those errors are similar to the errors many people make, people on Twitter, marketers, etc. Error number one is assuming that money is the same thing as quality. So, for example, we talk about the number one box office movie, even though it's not necessarily the best movie, it's just the one that sold a lot of tickets. Politicians say, if I can raise more money, I will show people I'm serious. Well, actually, no, you will just show people you've raised a lot of money. And then, and we see the same thing, of course, with VCs. And then the second mistake they make is believing that television is the best way to build a loyal following. And that was true in 1970 and even 1980. But not one successful new brand has been built on the basis of expensive TV advertising since, you know, 10 years ago. Not one. Then when we think about Airbnb and Uber and Lululemon and go down the list, your favorite food brands, your favorite entertainment brands, these are built based on experience, word of mouth, connection, and trust. They're not built on the basis of yelling at strangers merely because you have money. And it's just pathetic to watch politicians who I think at one point in their lives dreamed of doing good work, selling themselves down the river because they believe that the only way to govern is to have a lot of money. Yeah, it's it. They they haven't caught on, and um, it's it's interesting that you 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 draw that parallel as well to to advertising and brands because. 
like you said, it used to be effective, you know, when television was, was the big medium and, and you can yell and scream and people were influenced by that. And the ones who still are, are kind of grandfathered in. They're, you know, the big brands that you, you still know that are successful on TV have always been successful on TV. But uh, yeah, and it seems that, it, you know, politics and, and, and even higher education, I feel like, is, is another industry that still relies on mass market awareness tactics and they they don't really have... Uh, a strategy for reaching people on these more modern mediums. Um, so it's interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I want to go a step further, and I think it's really relevant to the people who are listening. You have to understand that television was the greatest magic trick of all time. That for 50 years, television ads were a screaming bargain. That for 50 years, uh, a top-rated television show guaranteed you would change the culture. That for 50 years, the mindset of average stuff for average people, mass, 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 drove everything. It drove the way we think about how to run a school. It drove the way we think about what it means to be a freelancer or an entrepreneur or an artist or a musician or someone who runs a small business. And it's not true anymore. And some people look at Twitter and YouTube and Facebook and say, oh, they're just like TV, but the ads are free. And no, that's not what it is. That's not what it is, and we have to get past that. That people who come up with clever ways to trick you on to click something, that people who come up with uh, well-constructed but ultimately empty, quote, content marketing, unquote, are trying to simulate TV, but without the scale and impact that TV offered. What I am arguing is this is a fundamental, fundamental shift in our culture, not like it used to be. It is impossible to have mass now. So my favorite example of the day is the Mad Men TV show. So cultural aware people like you and me, of course, everyone watched Mad Men. Mad Men's most successful episode was seen by 1% of the population of the United States. 1%. So what we have to understand is mass is over. You will not win by trying to yell just a little bit louder. It's a whole new game. Yeah, your policies are on point. So if, if you did run, Seth, what would be your campaign slogan? Uh, you know, I didn't even get that far, but it might be something like always bring a towel or maybe <laughs> uh, why not? Uh, you know, anyone, I, I don't even want to start extemporaneously talking <laughs> slogans. That so. works. Yeah, th- those work. So let's back How about up. A, politi- a politician so good. He doesn't even need a slogan, is my slogan. <laughs> That's very meta. I like that. So, so let's back up a little bit. Where are you from uh, originally? Well, I say Buffalo, but I was born in Mount Vernon, New York, which is only six miles from where I live now. Uh, but I spent from year five to year 18 outside of Buffalo, New York, a fabulous place to grow up um, for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, it's a small town. Uh, my mom was the first woman on the board of the art museum. Uh, one of the finest art museums in the world. My dad was the volunteer head of the United Way one year, uh, played hockey. We could go skiing 45 minutes away. It was the kind of place where parents told their kids, go, go, go explore. Of course, you're going to walk to school even though it's three miles away. Um, it was the kind of place where you could go to the library and have a shot at actually finding an interesting book and not getting seduced into just watching more TV. So a lot of who I became, I became because I have had amazing parents and um, because the 
expectation was that you connected with other people and you did something because you could, not because you had to. And were you one of those kids, you hear a lot of people say this, that they, they sort of just had entrepreneurship in their DNA. Like, were you getting ice cream from the ice cream man and then flipping them for double the cost to your friends? Well, you know, I'm a word guy, so I care a lot about semantics. Entrepreneurs are a special class of profession. A true entrepreneur is focused on building a business bigger than herself, a business that grows while she sleeps. A true entrepreneur hires other people to do the work so that she can go solve a more interesting problem. Uh, I've almost never been an entrepreneur. I am a impresario, a freelancer, uh, someone who likes to do art projects. So yes, my first business was when I was 14, selling biorhythms on the public radio uh, telethon. Then when I was 15, uh, I had an ice cream sandwich stand at the high school. And when I was 16, I started a ski club uh, that ran for years and years. Uh, so I've been doing projects for a really long time. I was just never particularly focused on flipping them for double the price. <laughs> Goes against sort of the uh, the mentality. So for the listeners and, and even viewers, when you know uh, people such as yourself speak at conferences, I wanted to, to start out by humanizing you a little bit because I think listeners and viewers tend to put up these imaginary walls between themselves and say a presenter like you and say, well, obviously I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I, you know, Seth Godin has millions of blog readers. My blog doesn't. Um, so I wanted to start with like a few questions that would sort of, you know, level the playing field and, and humanize you a little bit because in fact you are, uh, tell us about, cause you, you talk a lot about fear. Tell us about some of some of your fears as as a professional, um, either in the past or, or currently. What are you What are you afraid of? You know, I completely reject the premise of this line of questioning. Um, I think that you are correct that people ask questions like that with excuses built in because they are afraid. But reassurance is futile. That no amount of hearing that the people that you have uh, put over there are just like you is going to be enough to make you unafraid. No amount of it. That other than Chuck Norris, all of us are afraid often. The only difference is what you do with the fear. That uh, people who ship work that's interesting figure out not how to make the fear go away. I have never met a creative person who said, oh yeah, I solved my fear problem. Now I'm doing fine. What they say is, the fear is here. It's a signal. It's a symptom. It's a compass. I've learned to dance with it. And it's this idea that you can dance with the fear that's so much more important. I am afraid every single time I do something worth doing. And if I'm not afraid, then I know I'm just doing my job, not the work. The work is dancing with the thing that makes you afraid. And you talk a lot about that feeling in that moment, um, that, 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 that fear that inherently prevents you know, a lot of people from taking chances, uh, playing it safe. And I saw a video of you at the, the 99U conference uh, where you told a story about your son, and he climbed a 12-foot diving board when he was a kid, and once he got to the top, he was afraid to jump. And then when he finally did, 
he couldn't wait to go again. And I think all of us can relate to that, whether it's going on a roller coaster, whether it's about bungee jumping or skydiving or publishing an article. or Everyone's had that moment where they were afraid to do it and then they wanted to, to, to do it again. And you sort of make, you know, you're, you're living off of that moment. Why, what is so fascinating to you about this moment, uh, you know, where where people are so paralyzed by fear, where they and, and they can't make decisions so much so that you put out these books that help people. They sell millions of copies, and people obviously it resonates with people. What is so fascinating about that? Well, I think there's a glitch in the evolutionary cycle right now, um, and it's pretty recent. But if you think about it, the reason that we are afraid is because if your great grandparents' times factor of 10 hadn't been afraid, they would have been eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. Uh, and that fear, the fear of not speaking up because if the chief throws you out of the village, uh, you're going to die in the jungle. That fear, because if you speak up, uh, the, the bigger bully in the tribe will pummel you, that fear has some really valid uses. The thing is, uh, we have erected a culture that is the safest culture ever imagined in humankind's history, that infant mortality is way down, uh, crime between strangers is way down, illness is almost off the charts. And all those things that we were afraid of, we can't productively continue to be afraid of, but the fear persists. And so now we have this environment where you don't make a living uh, plugging part A into part B on the assembly line, I mean, too many people still do that for a living, but anyone listening to this does not. We have a li- we make a living doing something that most people are afraid of. And so what could be more fascinating when we're talking about work than to talk about that, than to talk about this glitch that all of us have to deal with every single day and that is at the heart of our connection economy? Uh, I, I think that that combined with our ability to be generous with people who need us to be generous are the two most fascinating topics that I wrestle with every single day. Yeah, and 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 part of also uh, that fear that people have is is putting themselves out there, um, you know, publishing content, uh, you know, putting their thoughts out there because you know, especially in in, a, in an online forum because it's so easy to get disagreed with and it's so easy to be told you're wrong um but you're somebody who you post every single day and you know every single day like like today's and a, a lot of times they're they, they can be abstract and people can sort of mold them to the challenges that they're having so talk about how do you what is your process like how do you what sparks these moments that turn into blog posts? Because surely you have a lot of thoughts and ideas that stream through your head every day. Which ones end up sticking and making it to the blog? Like, how does, how does that work? Well, uh, let me answer the first part first, which is no one says to a marathon runner, I really want to run a marathon, but I don't want to get tired. What's your secret? Because marathon runners don't try to not get tired. Marathon runners just figure out where to put the tired. Well, the same thing is true here. I have more one-star reviews on Amazon than anyone you know. And the question is not, can you write a book that gets no one-star reviews? The question is, what are you going to do with the one-star reviews? If you seek them out, if you memorize them, if you treasure them, if you argue with them, if you mull them over and roll them around in your mouth and then spit them out, well, then... It's no surprise whatsoever that you're paralyzed and can't write. 
On the other hand, if you say, well, I know I'm onto something if I can write a book popular enough to get a bunch of one-star reviews. Um, and I'm not going to read them because no one ever got to be a better writer by reading their one-star reviews. That's a choice. There's lots of ways to deal with that. So you asked me a different question. though. Your question was, I think, where do I get all my good ideas? And I want to paraphrase that question to, where do I get all my bad ideas? Because if I could get more bad ideas, then it's extremely likely that some good ideas will get caught as bycatch. And if you seek out good ideas, you will probably fail because your fear will stop you. But if you seek out bad ideas and keep looking for bad ideas and keep writing down bad ideas, then the good ones will show up. So I write five or six or seven or eight blog posts a day, and I keep the ones that seem to resonate with me, and I throw out the rest. And one out of three blog posts I post are in the top third of all the posts I do. And the other two-thirds aren't, and yet I persist. Wow. So there's a, there's a slew of blog posts on the cutting room floor that may not ever see the light of day? Uh, unless my heirs can figure out how to sell them to the New York Public Library. I think that's probably <laughs> true. <laughs> and, um, you know, you're a big advocate um, especially in you know all of your books, but I, I really like the the your, your newest one. It's your turn, and the, the way it was distributed uh, was very clever. But you're a, a big advocate, obviously, of doing work that matters. So, tell us about you. I guess personally, young, uh, early in your career, were you always in a position to do this, or did you have experiences that sort of you know fed this this mentality? Were you always in a position to do work that matters to you? No, I was never in a position to do work that matters. Most people aren't. Um, it's really unlikely that someone who's on one path stops and says without prompting, I have enough. I've pleased enough people. I'm done on the path I was on. Now I'm going to do work that matters. That's really rare. And so I was you know, on the verge of bankruptcy for five, ten years. Uh, I had people who were counting on me to pay their bills. I had clients who didn't get the joke. I had a marketplace that wasn't conducive to creative endeavor. I had all of the hassles that so many people go through, and it would have been really, really easy to continue down that path because in our culture, you're never big enough. You're never profitable enough. You're never at the point where you can say, okay, now I can do work that matters. Instead, if we're very fortunate, we bump into enough ideas, enough people, enough books, that one day we are pushed to say, you know what? If I didn't do this, no one would miss it. And if you can say that to yourself, you might be able to dig deep enough to say, why don't I do something else instead? And it's entirely possible you could make a living doing it. It's entirely possible you can make a living doing it. I'm not arguing one way or another about whether this is profitable. What I am saying is I hope that each of us will think about whether at least once a day we could do something that if we didn't do it, people would miss it. And a lot of people are at, you know, stuck in jobs where the, you know, the, the question back to that would be, well, what if the work that matters to me isn't possible at the company I'm at that's allowing me to pay my bills? And that's entirely possible. So what I would say is Turn off your television and for two hours every night and four hours on the weekend, do that other thing and keep doing that other thing. 
and do that other thing better and better and more and more generously and keep doing that other thing. And it's possible, and we see it over and over again, that if you do that other thing often enough, someone will pay you to do it again. Is that how is that how the blog was built and 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 to an extent your publishing career is was it something that started as that other thing that you were putting sort of you know emotional mind share into and it turned into what it what it did? Well, I've never made a nickel on my blog. I mean, I I send my Amazon affiliate revenue to uh, Acumen Fund, uh, and you know I, it is true that my Dollar Shave Club link from seven years ago got me all the razors I will ever be able to use for the rest of my life. <laughs> but that is probably the extent of the uh, direct financial upside of blogging. I blog because I can. I blog because I love it. I pay a monthly fee to TypePad for the privilege of running a blog with no ads on it that I'm proud of. Um, but yes, the blog opens doors because in our culture, people are likely to trust someone more if they've bumped into their work before. Uh, you know, I started in the book business in 86. I did books with ridiculous titles like The Smiley Dictionary and Email Addresses of the Rich and Famous. Uh, and those were fun to do. They weren't super lucrative, but they aren't like the work I do now. But along the way, I turned down lots and lots of chances to do things that the middle of the market wanted. The Permission Marketing Handbook, the sequel uh, to tribes, the sequel to this, the sequel to that. Because sequels aren't, for me, the work. The work is to do something that might not work, even if it doesn't pay as well. Yeah, because the sequel almost has that first success to sort of bank off of. Um, so yeah, that, that's that's an interesting way of looking at it. And so you have these people, like I just mentioned, who the current company I'm at isn't isn't allowing me to do the work that matters, and so what we're saying is these people should you know work toward uh, creating that 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 opportunity for themselves. But then there's other people who may be at a great company, it's larger in scale, um, and so much of doing the work that matters sometimes is really about having the trust and autonomy to to make decisions and to do the work. Uh, but that could be tough in some of these bigger companies with with the hierarchy and the bureaucracy. So how do people navigate? this hierarchy that drives so many organizations in order to get to the work that matters. Well, of course it's tough. I mean, we're still calling it work, even though you're indoors with free snacks, espresso in the morning, a 401k, and a pretty secure job. We still call it work. Well, you know which part's hard? The part that's hard is going to a meeting and being vulnerable. The part that's hard is taking responsibility when it might not even be your fault. The hard part is giving credit when you wish you could keep the credit that the people who figure out how to work their way into significant organizations, uh, you know, like the new CEO of Microsoft, what an extraordinary guy he is. He didn't get there because he fit in more than everywhere else, than everyone else. He got there because he did the emotional labor to see what other people didn't see and to lead from behind, to lead without authority, to take responsibility when he didn't have to over and over and over again, to go on an arc to make a difference. And none of that was easy. None of that's easy at any of these organizations. This myth that you're working in the mailroom and then suddenly someone comes up to you and says, we pick you, come here to the executive suite. You're in charge now and you have no responsibility if things go wrong. That never happens. So if we can just accept the fact that 
uh, it's not going to happen, and we do the other thing instead, I think then we've got a shot. Then we've got a shot to make this magical thing happen. And the message, too, about doing work that matters, especially you have a course for freelancers on Udemy that I've seen. Um, and you talk a lot about doing work that matters on there and putting the time in. And um, it's, a, it's a very good course for, for our listeners out there that may be interested. Um, but obviously, the, the message people take from that um, and the inspiration they take from that is, I want to build my own idea instead of helping someone else build theirs. It's very personal to them. This do work that matters. A lot of people take that as, well, what matters to me is very personal. And, and maybe other people that I'm working with now don't agree with this. I need to start my own thing. So... You know, it's become easier and cheaper to fail sort of right now. So should people think like people that think this way, should they think less about joining companies and more about starting their own? Okay, so I'd say the following. First of all, I don't care if it matters to you. I care if it matters to the people who you're serving. And that's a very big distinction. That if you have this poem or novel in you, and you need to get it out, then by all means, go ahead. But if it doesn't resonate with the audience, well, that's their choice. And we have to forgive them for the fact that it doesn't resonate with them. That this comes from a place of generosity, not a place of ego. It comes from a place of being able to say, what risk could I take in the world that would matter to someone else, not that would matter to me? And then I appreciate you mentioning the Udemy course. Uh, I hope that people who are thinking of going on their own will uh, spend the 25 bucks to watch it. It's four hours. I'm really proud of the shift it's making in people to get to the true dynamic of what it means to be a freelancer, which is not to wait to get assignments from people who are looking for someone cheap and you happen to be the cheapest, most generic person they can find, but instead to be, as my friend Zig used to say, a meaningful specific to stand for something in the way you do your work that makes it distinct because you did it. And that's available to more people today than ever before. And, uh, you know, I, I'll start wrapping up by telling you a story about uh, I got in an Uber in Miami a couple of weeks ago. I, I talk up Uber drivers all the time. And this guy was loving what he was doing. And I was explaining to him that one day soon, as Uber gets more power, they're going to pay the drivers less because. That's the way these organizations work. But he was hearing none of it. He said, this is perfect. No one knows who I am. I work when I want to work. I get paid when I want to get paid. And if that's working for him and for you, that's fine. I can't guarantee it will keep working. But for the rest of us, what's available is the chance to put our name on it, to say, I made this to do work we care about for people we care about, to say to those people, here, I made this. I hope it touches you. I hope it moves you. I hope it makes enough of a difference to you that you'll ask me to make something else for you again. That's scary. That's difficult. But it is well within our skill set. And like you just said, too, like it, the opportunity to do so has never been greater. So what you're seeing is a lot of engineers or uh, you know, talent in, in any industry really coming out of school and sort of executing on these ideas that have. Most of them flop. Some of them succeed. Some of them become huge. Are big corporations, maybe in the next decade or two, are they going to have like the, these big hierarchical organizations that, that you know, have uh, you know, the traditional sort of structure and they have to follow standards, they set them, you follow them, they play it safe, 
you're, you're not giving the autonomy. Are big corporations like this, are they going to have a talent problem in the coming decade where people in these graduating generations just aren't interested in having that sort of working lifestyle? Okay, so most of the organizations you're talking about tell themselves they need a lot of talent, but they really don't. Um, they need compliant, skilled labor. They need people who will do what they did yesterday, but faster and cheaper. So the talent comes in when a, a cutting-edge company like Netflix says, we're going to stop being a DVD company and leap into this new internet model we've invented. You need real talent to do that. The talent comes in when a cutting-edge company like Netflix then says, now we need to produce our own stuff. It's this huge leaps forward. Those kinds of projects, and they can be smaller, but they're scary. Those kinds of products projects require management that is willing and interested in trusting their people. That when you trust your people, when you say to them, I hired you because you're talented, and part of what it means to be talented is to do work that I can't guarantee is going to work, those people are having no trouble finding talent. None. It's when you want talent, but then treat that talent like they're not talented, that's hard. Yeah, and there's plenty of organizations that still that still operate in that way. And uh, uh, I have a, a friend who I won't mention. It's a big, big national company. But she says that they have internal meetings. Um, you know, it's, it's a huge company, and they have uh, meetups at their headquarters once a year. Thousands and thousands of people come out. They had this big meeting about, guys, what can we do to attract the millennials? We're having trouble hiring younger people. And so they're sitting there talking about, do we need to get on Twitter? Do we need to get on Instagram? And they're talking about the channels people are using and, right. and not the, the way that they're thinking. And I think that you, th this got me thinking. I was like, wow, so these, these organizations, are they're conscious of this. But not so much that they need talent, like you just said. They're just like, well, why don't we have more younger workers? Why aren't college graduates coming out to work for us? So it's going to be an interesting dynamic to see play out over the next decade or two to see how these companies try to connect with, with younger people. It's interesting. Yeah, and you know what? In revolutionary times, and that's where we live now, the talent that blows up the status quo is what builds the next generation of value. And so, you know, you were mentioning the fact that, uh, you know, people who worked at Firestone. Firestone sells tires and can change your oil. We will need that until we all switch to electric cars that are self-driving. But that business isn't going to change. That business isn't going to grow. That business isn't going to explode and create new value. It's going to be on the edges where the magic happens. And if you're not on the edge, go there because it's worth it. I want to talk to you also about permission marketing. You know, this was like this book that um, was, it was very transformative in that it was, it was eerily, uh, it, it eerily foreshadowed the things to come in marketing and advertising. It seems you saw something then and how technology was, was changing the way that people interact with brands. Um, and as a result, how they make choices. Um, and you, you actually made a joke a couple of years ago. You spoke at Inbound and you put a picture up on the board of you sitting in an audience by yourself. And you said, I was actually at the first Inbound conference, but it was just me. I was talking about this long before everyone else was. 
Um, and so what's interesting about that is when you make when you make proclamations like this or you write books that seemingly foreshadow the future, people always want to know, and you probably get this question a lot, well, what are you seeing now? So like what's going to happen in the next 10 years? Like what's next? So what what do you see? So I guess there it is. What, what do you see now um, moving forward um, based on sort of your experience in the past with permission marketing? Is this going to be the way that we always interact, you know, uh, the, the connection economy, or do you see something else sort of formulating? Well, John, you may not like my answer, but here it goes. This is the next thing. It's a little bit like asking Henry Ford and one of his pals in 1921, all right, you told us about this whole industrial revolution, mass production, interchangeable parts, interchangeable people thing. What's next? Well, that was what was next for 70 years. And this is what's next. The channels are going to change for sure. The platforms are going to change without a doubt. Uh, the, the way it looks is going to be different. But this is it. This is what's next. Yes, and 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 a lot of that uh, permission marketing and, and the channel, everything is really centered around, and this isn't changing. Is it's more? It, it it seems more like like marketing and advertising were in a brick and mortar. Not not that I was around for it. Um, in the 1950s, things were built on trust and word of mouth and referrals, and this guy makes a great pizza. Um, and then things got very commercialized. Um, and it seems like it's sort of drifting back that way. Social media has made us, uh, enabled us to hear word of mouth more and referrals more and hear what other people are saying and experience what other people are experiencing. Um, and I think a lot of permission marketing was based on shifting that way to, to word of mouth and referral and making a great experience. But people have become so obsessed with measurement and ROI because of all the data that's available and all the software that's available to measure where your blog visitors come from and, and which things turn into customers that referrals and word of mouth sort of fall to the wayside because they're not easily trackable. So there's a discrepancy there, is there not? Well, you said the word people as if you meant everyone. I don't track any of that. Uh, I don't do any SEO. I don't have funnel analysis. I haven't looked at my Google Analytics in a year. Uh, I don't think Amanda Palmer does. I don't think David Byrne does. I don't think Shepard Fairey does. And I'm putting myself in their category with a little bit of hubris, and I probably shouldn't. But the point is, that's your choice. And if you want to uh, average to the median, go for it. But you don't have to do that. So people that, you know, what growth, you know, growth marketers, growth hackers would, would argue there is, well, how do we know what the audience is looking for if we don't know what's resonating? So we track and measure everything and we allocate all of our resources and our time and our effort and emotional labor into what we already know is working. So if you're not looking at SEO and you're not measuring website traffic and all these things that, that, that many marketers measure, how do, how do people develop a strategy? Well, think about all the th- uh, movies you admire, the music you listen to, the foods you eat, the restaurants you go to, uh, the statesmen uh, that you admire. Did any of them do what you're talking about? Does Pixar make a new movie based on uh, lots of exit interviews from the last one and they keep making new versions of Monsters, Inc.? No. The talent is knowing without reading the data. That's the talent. And that means that uh, Pete Doctor can visualize a movie without running a focus group. 
And if you want to be meaningful, you've got to have the guts to go do that and keep doing it until you figure out what works. Not by being able to point to a database or a spreadsheet and proving that you are right. Because I can find someone cheaper than you to do that. So if I asked you how many views your blog post had this morning announcing your presidency, you, you or your candidacy for presidency, you you wouldn't be able to tell me that. No clue. That's great. I mean that that's great, and it's and it's 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 almost like the, the data allows marketers this veil to hide behind um, in in fear because doing doing it the way you do is a lot scarier because like you said, you're going to see what works. Some stuff's going to fail, but there's that word that failure word. Um, people almost are afraid of failing of their jobs of their um, they're going to seem less competent. So they have to follow the data to do what resonates. They already know this works and we're going to keep doing more of it. Um, so it's a lot scary to do with you what you do. And I, and I think that that's the fact that you haven't looked at your Google analytics. That's um, you know, the, that's that's so admirable. I mean, <laughs> so many so many so many CMOs would probably look at that, and if their if their team was telling them, "Oh, I didn't look at Google Analytics," they'd be like, "What? What the hell are you talking about? Then what are we what are we doing here?" So it seems that there's definitely a disconnect between these bigger organizations and what the CMOs expect, and so yeah, it's just it's a tricky it's a tricky minefield to navigate if you wanted to do more of that kind of work. So here's where I need to wrap up. I would suggest that people blog every single day. You don't even have to put your real name on it, but make a commitment every day to notice something and write about that thing you noticed in a way that doesn't benefit you, but benefits someone else. And do that every day for 60 days without measuring, just to do it, just to see how it feels, just to be naked. And my bet is that if you can start down that path, you might not end up being a blogger, but you will end up being someone who can speak their truth with more confidence. And so I, I, I hope that helps. And I'd love to hear people's experience with that too, to, to be more naked and be more exposed. Seth, thank you so much for taking the time to come and hang out for a little bit today. It was a pleasure. Always love hearing you wax poetic on things um, and sort of school me on some things as well. So thanks so much for coming on. Thanks. Over and out. Keep up the great work, John. Thank you, Seth. And thank you, all the listeners, for coming out. Uh, if you like this episode, go ahead and share, comment, subscribe, all those good things. And join us next time because we'll be back with more great guests. So long, everyone. Mm-hmm.